I don't have any words of wisdom. I'm sorry. I'm more on like pointing out problems and I try to find solutions, but really, really good, effective ones are few and far between. You're listening to Work Hard, Parent Hard, a podcast by Mirza. Mirza is a company on a mission to close the gender pay gap. Our inaugural season, How to Dad, is all about masculinity and fatherhood for the modern parent. Hi, I'm Saran Sao, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Mirza. Hi, I'm Mel Faxon. I am the co-founder and COO of Mirza. Saran, I'm really excited about this episode today because I think that, you know, we've, we've already released four episodes of How to Dad, and it's been such a great experience talking about why masculinity matters and how to be a modern parent, but we haven't really tied it into why it's so important for us at Mirza. Are you saying this because as women, it's weird for us to talk about how to be a dad? No, I'm saying <laughs> this because I think that we need dads to also care about closing the gender pay gap, and we need to know where the numbers come in and what the statistics are saying and what impact this actually has, not just on the microcosm of a relationship, but in the, in the bigger picture. And as policy nerds and as research nerds, we know that there's so much information out there that what's really exciting is to be able to talk to someone who's on the forefront of that research. Absolutely. And who's living through parenthood at the same time. During COVID. Ooh, yikes. So today we are chatting with Elliot Sherman, a professor from the London Business School. Elliot, how are you today? California's on fire. People are dying. There's no end in sight. But let's talk about fatherhood. Yeah, let's talk about the gender pay gap and other things that aren't getting better. <laughs> well, but I mean, it has bearing on it, right? Because like, you know, like every parent, I wonder, what am I supposed to tell my kids? And if you look at the world, it's hard to not include that like cheaters win, right? Mm-hmm. People who are disrespectful are not corrected in any way. What you should do is be as venal and irresponsible and selfish as possible, and then hope that you die before the world, you know, for the heat death of the universe. I, it's just like, it's a weird time to be a parent. You know, every day we just get so many emails and there's so many articles about how hard this has been for working parents. How do you explain to your kids what's happening? How do you make them feel safe, but at the same time be conscious? And I really can't imagine what that's been like for you. But I would love to learn more about your kids. Do you mind telling us some more about them? Yeah. So I complained incessantly about my kids for like the first couple of years, but they're really great. And the fact that I did, I think says much more about me than about them and how, you know, incredibly unequipped I was to be a father, at least in the beginning, maybe still, maybe I still am. And it also highlights kind of how difficult it must be for parents of children with disabilities, health problems. I mean, I have two rambunctious, energetic, incredibly smart, fun, healthy children, and it almost did me in. Like that almost took me out. So anything that ups the ante a little bit, I just have endless reserves of sympathy and admiration for parents in those circumstances. But yeah, so my son is five, his name's Derek, and then my daughter is three. Her name is Kyra. And she's, yeah, they're very different. It shouldn't be surprising, right? Because it's what happens, right? It's come out different. But somehow it's still, it always surprises me how, how totally different they are. She is incredible. She's so full of life and joy. And there's a few things we do regularly. Like I took my daughter to brunch every Saturday. And I've been doing it since she was two. And I'm going to be honest here. A lot of it was because 
I missed having like really good brunches and I was like, fuck this. I'm just going to take my kid. And at least I'll get eggs Benedict. But like she really started to like it. She gets the full English and I always have to specify like not like the kid version. Fried <laughs> eggs, two sausages, beans, a side of avocado, and I eat the bacon and toast basically. That's so fun. I love the like father-daughter brunch ritual so much. And it's just like such a nice thing. Hopefully be something that you can really continue through like the teenage years when kids start to like freak out about being with their parents. If I can't bribe them with excellent breakfast food, then I think like kind of out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, we went right into the stories about parenting and I realized that we actually never talked about who you are. Can you introduce yourself more? Sure, I'm an assistant professor at London Business School, and my research examines the structural constraints that impede women's careers with a particular emphasis on testing solutions, like feasible solutions that firms could implement using field experiments. Love that. Love the solutions. <laughs> it's a short list. It's, it's mostly like, tried that, didn't work. Tried that, didn't work. Remote working, actually. Discretionary remote working policies seem to be really helpful, but... You know, I have a paper that looks at the effect of having more female managers on the wage gap among their subordinates. That doesn't seem to work, although it's a laudable goal in and of itself. I have a field experiment looking at a salary history ban. So the idea that if you preclude hiring managers from asking applicants to disclose their current or past salary, that might rectify some of the, the wage gap. That doesn't seem to work. And I think a lot of it actually is because of, of parenthood, right? Like a lot of the solutions that we think about are discrete solutions that target inequities in the workplace. And what that elides or, you know, really just fails to acknowledge is that you cannot understand why these inequities endure in the workplace without understanding the way that there's a lack of equality domestic sphere. So oh, if you absolutely. want to fix one, you've got to fix the other. Yeah. It's wonderful, beautiful way of describing how we're thinking about it too. We just have to be able to bridge that gap. So You've spoken a bit about your, your research. Can you tell us about how you got into researching the wage gap? Yeah, it's, it's totally research, right? So there's an expression that most of us are effectively researching ourselves in some way. And so for me, when I was in, in graduate school getting my PhD, I didn't really think a lot about any of this kind of stuff. And then my wife and I had a kid and I had an enlightened self-interest became <laughs> really, really interested in those dynamics and how, how they all played out. And it, it all of a sudden became to me the most important thing to study in the field. So I pivoted hard to that and really haven't, haven't looked back. Well, a lot changes once we start a family and once a baby enters the picture. What has that meant for you? It's kind of a condescending thing to say like, oh, you can't understand unless you've had a, a kid or you have kids. But I think in some sense it's true just because before I had children, I didn't even know like what I was supposed to imagine. Like what constraints should I even imagine happening, right? You can think of some like sleep disruption or this is what's so challenging when couples are trying to manage their careers and planning for a family is that you almost don't know how to have that conversation because you can't really imagine what it's like. So you get, you get couples having this very abstract discussion around like, should we have kids? which is you know, a very viable question, but it's hard to answer when you don't have any idea what having kids entails and how that would change your life. The advice I gave is instead of say, asking that question, a very abstract question, starts talking about like, all right, well, in a world where we had kids, what would the division of labor look like? You know, who would do what? What would our weekends look like? And I think that can be a much more revealing conversation to have because it, it requires a much more concrete answer, right? Should we have kids can lead to endless 
rumination discussion, who does the dishes on the weekends is like a much more direct question, but, but no less relevant. So I think the point you made about having really concrete questions and statements to ask yourself and your partner is really important. Have there been any questions or areas that you've seen in your research that people get hung up on the most, like that are kind of the most impactful change that people really underestimate that you can tell us now so that listeners can go back and ask their own partners? Well, it's complicated because the constraint, I say constraints, like, you know, Kids are wonderful in many respects, of course, but but when with respect to your career, they're they're in many ways constraining. The constraints change based on the age of the child and the number of kids that you have. So and I think that's you know that's another issue is like uh, with respect to women in the workforce, you can kind of manage around you know two like really demanding high status jobs and one kid, and then the second kid comes along and it's like you know to use a sports analogy. You can't play zone defense anymore. You got to play man to man. There's no like, oh, you've got the kid for now and I can like, catch up on work. I'm going to go like eat a meal without standing up. Like it's just sort of it's constant. Each of you has a kid at, at one point in time. And, and that's, that's a really tough change. I mean, like weekends, mm-hmm. for example, I highlight those because for most of your adult life, weekends are when you like feel refreshed and rejuvenate yourself so you can come back to the work week and do really well at your job. You know, with two kids, the weekends are a nightmare. I mean, it's like you just go from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And the cleaning, my God, the cleaning, it's always, you're always cleaning. You don't like sit down with both kids in bed, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night and feel anything really besides utter exhaustion. In my experience, I could be doing it wrong. Like I said, I'm sort of blending the, you know, the research I've consumed and produce around, around childcare as well as my own personal experiences. But my personal experience, you know, two kids, two demanding jobs, weekends are tough. Everything's tough. And what's crazy is that it's still difficult, even in light of all the things that make it easier, right? So like I, I have my groceries delivered to my doorstep. I'm very privileged in that regard, I'm privileged in many regards. And it's still hard, right? I have a professional house cleaner come and clean my house once a week. It's still hard. And if I could loop that personal experience back to research, that reflects something that scholars refer to as intensive mothering, which is this idea that what it takes or what it means really to be a parent not like an Olympic quality expert parent, just like a parent, a basic run-of-the-mill rudimentary parent. What it takes is now so all-consuming. It's very different than it was even 30, 40 years ago in terms of what people just assume you're supposed to do, how much engagement with your kids, how much what we call the concerted cultivation around organized leisure activities like sports and learning languages and, and all this kind of thing. And that's part of how well, it's so exhausting. You can have men actually doing a lot more but the delta is still bad because the the overall denominator of what's expected in terms of time and attention is so much greater than it was even 30 years ago. Yeah, I think I've read that women are spending as much time with their kids now as they were in the 60s, like kind of because of that intensive mothering that even though they're working infinitely more, they're still trying to do that, which seems just impossible to actually achieve. And that actually goes back to what you were saying when the advice that you give to folks to talk very operationally in a way of what will our lives look like and who's going to do what who's going to do the dishes who's gonna run the kid to soccer practice because ultimately that kind of points us towards those gender roles and the unspoken nature of who's taking that step back into a non-client facing role 
And that gender norm, that piece right there is super fascinating. It's really, really important to highlight because in a way, specialization of roles would be an ideal, right? Like I often think if I could just work and my wife would just take care of the home or vice versa, that would be in many ways a less stressful way to go through life because you have a clear division of labor and be able to sort of not feel bad about being deficient in the other. The problem with it is it's never vice versa, right? These choices don't get made in a vacuum. Men and women are not at equal risk of making the choice to downshift and focus uh, more on the home and the career. We're all subject to massive amounts of societal pressure, both explicit and implicit, that conditions us to believe that certain things are more or less appropriate. And for women, the often unspoken assumption is, oh yeah, you can do all this career stuff, but you just have to keep doing all this other stuff as well. And you can't let a single ball drop. Otherwise you're a terrible person and a terrible mother. And if I can sort of pivot back to the role of men, and again, this is speaking very heteronormatively about heterosexual couples, which I apologize. But you know, classically, I think that men of my generation, so you know, mid to late 30s, are not like malicious in the sense that they want to saddle their wives with responsibilities that impede their career development. It's more that they're like, oh, well, I'm just not going to do that. You don't have to do it, but I'm not going to do it. But there's this like this sort of psychological tick where, where they don't connect the dots to if I'm not doing it, that means that you're doing it. It's like, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying you should clean up. I'm just not going to do it because I'm busy. So on that note for fathers, what do you think are some things that fathers can do to support their spouses, their partners? Well, <laughs> share my suffering. I think that <laughs> I, I think you have to treat it like almost to take this thing that society has romanticized and mythologized beyond all reason, kind of pump the brakes a little bit. Yes, having children is incredibly meaningful, it's emotional and it's very rewarding. But also there's this like very mundane aspect where every day a certain amount of shit has to get done. And I'm going to do my best to make sure that that shit is evenly divided between me and my spouse. And the problem is men, and I've experienced this myself, men can get away with doing much less because there's a lot of like external validation, right? It's like every time, you know, I come and pick up my kid from daycare, it's like, oh, wow, look at this good dad stopping home instead of going to the bar. Like, it's like not that big a thing. So I think that the trick is having the tenacity to say, okay, it's not about doing like these one or two things. It's about like every single day thinking about dividing up the stuff that has to get done and being really diligent about it. Again, the way you would for your job. So what I hear from some of my, my male friends is like, well, you know, I try that, but my wife is like so specific about how she wants something done. And so I tried to do it and she said, hey, can you do it this way? And I was like, well, then fuck it, I'm not doing it. And it's like, if you did that for your job, you would get fired. If your colleague was like, hey, actually, you know, this, this report's wrong, could you file this way? And you're like, no, no, I was, how dare you? You're hinging on my freedom, I'm leaving. <laughs> like, it's weird. So basically, they treat it like a job. And, you know, if you have very high standards for yourself professionally, apply those high standards to yourself at home because your wife sure as hell is. All right. So you've mentioned your own experience here, and I'd love to probe a little bit on how you've supported your wife in, in raising your kids and how your wife has, it sounds like, potentially also asked very explicitly for what she needs. Could you share some stories and whether you've even had that same kind of logistics conversation on what life will look like and who does what together. We didn't. And I think that's not uncommon. 
it's a hard conversation to have and it's stressful. And I was in a position where you know, I felt I'm not established yet professionally. So let me just put off having kids for as long as possible. And I think that's, a, again, a not uncommon position for a lot of men to take. And it's also not uncommon for women to say, well, actually, there is kind of like, there's a timeline here and we need to make a decision sooner rather than later. So yeah, logistics rule my life. We could not get through the day without having a shared calendar. I mean, less so now that the world is upside down. <laughs> Don't need to know who's going to you know, be home because we're just home. But there's a lot of logistic conversation around who does the school drop-offs, right? Who's cooking dinner? Who's making dinner for the kids? And I think, again, back to this point about specialization, kind of reduces the collective mental load to just have certain tasks that are just yours, right? So I always do the recycling and taking out the garbage. And that way, you know, there's no kind of week to week back and forth about who's going to do it if it's responsibility. I do my best to get to 50% in all of the sort of regular things that have to happen. So every week we'll talk about who's going to put the kids to bed, who's going to take the kids to school, and just trying to divide that stuff up as much as possible. I think there's some things that it's really hard to make 50-50. So I'm, as an academic, unsurprisingly, I'm the kind of person that needs like solitude, craves it, right? I'm angry when I don't get it. And that's really hard to achieve in a situation where, you know, the kids are demanding 28 hours in a day and you only have 24. And it can sound very self-serving. Say, well, actually, what I need is to close the door and sit here for two hours and write this thing. And then I'll feel better about myself and I won't be grumpy. But like, I also think what's really important with these kind of conversations is, is articulating what you need, right? So like we've had, we had that conversation back and forth for years where what she was really hearing is you're shirking. I have things I want to do. We all have things we want to do, but we also have responsibilities. And I think it was actually really sweet. She was reading, I think it was Michelle Obama's book or autobiography. There was a sort of passage where she, she saw behavior that reminded her of me. So it's like having these conversations saying, no, look, it's not just me trying to get out of stuff. There is this dispositional difference between us where you can just go from thing to thing to thing. And she falls asleep at night in like 10 seconds. And, you know, for me, it's, it's like if I don't have the right pattern of things happen, I will not fall asleep. It's like some kind of arcane ritual I have to go through. I guess the bigger point is that, you know, the attempt to get to an equal partnership elides the fact that we're dispositionally different. And most couples are dispositionally different. So that's the challenge. It's like you have to figure out how do we give each other what we need to not go insane in this, you know, very sort of limited window of incredibly demanding young years because they get older and it's, it's sort of a different set of challenges, right? It's, it's, it's still challenging, but it's not as much about, you know, every single minute of the day is devoted to something. So it's, it's a question of how do we get through that, you know, five or six years without going crazy, but also without one party kind of resenting the other for using that as a justification to not pull their weight. Elliot, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you again for all of your time. Before we wrap up, one final question. Do you have any words of wisdom or advice for people to kind of take home with them? I don't have any words of wisdom. I'm sorry. I'm more on like pointing out problems. Try to find solutions, but really, really good, effective ones are few and far between. Elliot, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for telling us these incredible stories and thank you for the work that you do it is so necessary we've spoken to a lot of dads throughout this podcast and next week we're going to talk to even more 
In fact, we're talking to several all at once. The Dad's Chat. I'm so excited for next week's episode. I thought it was really just heartwarming to hear dads kind of at every stage of the fatherhood journey talking about their own experiences, asking each other for advice. And I really hope that everyone comes back to listen to our last episode. To get more information about us, please visit our website. It is heymirza.com. And in case you're wondering, Mirza is M-I-R-Z-A. And you can also follow us on social, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Mirza Says Hey. We also have a YouTube channel, uh, Mirza Musings, because we love alliteration. Work Hard, Parent Hard is hosted by Saran Sao and Mel Faxon. It is produced by Connor Arthurs, sound engineered by Georgina Hahn, who also wrote and composed our theme song.